Transform the way you hunt with the all-new Bay Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and I am very appreciative that you guys continue to support our channel. And uh, if, if you haven't already, do me a favor, wherever you're listening to your podcast, whether that's on Spotify, Google, iTunes, give us a review. Give us a five-star review. And I, by all means, guys, send us comments. You know, send us, uh, send us personal messages on Instagram or Facebook. Let us know how we're doing. Let me know what you think. Um, if there's topics you want to hear about, you know that'd be well appreciated too. And you know if you've got uh, if you've got things you'd like to share on this channel, you reach out to me, uh, Facebook, Instagram at Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, and also we've got our email pa woodsman podcast at gmail dot com. You know all that stuff is it's great info for me. It's it's a great way to just gauge what everybody's feeling when they're listening to our show but again I'm, I'm just real appreciative and on this week's episode we are going to finish up our conversation with Corey Golvis and if you remember back in the beginning in part one if you ch- tuned in if you did not tune in I, I really suggest going back and listening because we we talked a lot about the evolution that Corey went through of becoming a deer hunter Corey kind of really fell in love with whitetail hunting a little bit later in high school time frame you know he he was around hunting he was around the great outdoors but uh, really took interest in whitetails and big woods whitetails here in northern pennsylvania around that time frame and he's been growing in progression ever since talks a little bit about his shed hunting experience and how he has just became infatuated with that and his his bow hunting experience and transitioning to recurve we started talking a little bit about whitetail hunting strategy and the successes that he has found throughout that time frame and we're going to pick back up in that portion of the conversation and then after that to follow up we are going to get into a little bit more detail about his recurve shooting and if you've never shot recurve traditional archery first of all it's a whole new world it's you're talking about really fine-tuning your mistakes in your shooting and shooting form and it's uh it's i've tried it and that's about as much as i can say as i've tried it and i hats off to people like Corey who have the patience and take the time to master shooting without sights and shooting without the, all the wonderful things that come with the compound. And, you know, the, a lot of the things you face in archery, whether that's compound or recurve, I'm thinking along the lines of target panic and just good shot execution. They both occur, but it's it's just completely amplified in that. And that's something Corey has experienced as a a recurve shooter and he goes into some details about things that if you're not a recurve shooter it might sound a little bit foreign to you and we try to break that down and relate it 
to shooting on any level, whether that is, you know, an experienced compound shooter, a beginning compound shooter, or a beginning uh, recurve and longbow shooter. And it's, it's just a great thing, and it's easily it's easy to relate for me when I'm comparing it to my bow hunting experience and my shooting experience and preparing for the upcoming archery season. So, you know, I hope you really enjoy this part of the episode, um, of part two of Corey. You know, I had a great time talking with Corey. You know, people like him are, are why you, they're, they're people that are fun and interesting to listen to because they have a lot of knowledge. Um, Corey's an extremely humble guy, and he just loves to be out in the great, great outdoors, be out in creation and enjoying the woods, enjoying the big woods of Pennsylvania, which is, is something to uh, to cherish. So before we get into the second part of the episode, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things and give, uh, give our remarks to Little Mountain Outfitters. Little Mountain Outfitters is an archery dealer in Richland, Pennsylvania. And if you guys are in the market for a new bow, I suggest you go and you check them out. <clears throat> They're dealers for Prime, Bear, PSE, and a couple more, Matthews, um, crossbows, accessories. I just got a couple of arrows uh, cut and set up and lined up ready to go for me this fall. But not only that, you've got all the, the things you're going to need for archery as well as some saddle hunting gear and mobile hunting gear for you to test out. Um, get your hands on it, feel it, touch it talk to those guys who are well experienced in that area um, they've also dealer for rambo motorbikes um, check those out um, it's, it's a fantastic site and the last thing is we're we're wrapping up you know we're getting closer and closer to fall food plot planting season uh, we'll probably have a couple episodes coming up here but the uh, there are dealers for real world wildlife seed and it's a it's a great resource for all things to get prepared for for the fall so check them out on facebook at littlemountainoutfitters.com and if you need to get tuned up and ready to go i really suggest reaching out to devon and terry they're excellent bowsmiths with excellent customer service so be sure to check them out and with that let's get started with this episode And with that knowledge you have of being able to spend time off season and in season, you know, there's got to be a way that you kind of decipher when you pick a chunk of timber. I mean, let's just say there's a, there's a chunk of national forest land that we're going to pick out. Let's say it's 25,000 acres, which is a, Mm -hmm. that's, that's a small track compared to some of the, the national forest or state forest tracks that are in Pennsylvania. That's a lot of ground for somebody to cover. So, I mean, I'm kind of, curious when you like how does somebody like yourself break down such a chunk of of land mass and say look this i'm going to cross these sections out for these reasons and that might be because well i i do find that whatever feature you see maybe it's a a ridge or a maybe it is a funnel on a map or maybe it's boots on the ground you find that natural funnel. like is is there a way that you kind of cross ground off like like because i feel like finding where you don't want to hunt mm-hmm. is just as important as finding where right. you do want to hunt absolutely yeah absolutely that i mean yes so i mean pennsylvania is uh extremely it's diverse in habitat right so if you go to the western part of the state like my brother he spends a lot of time in the national forest over there and the national forest over there um you know they cut they cut a decent amount of timber and they have a lot of uh, swamps 
dewberry swamps and things like that. Over here where, you know, where I hunt, north central part of the state, and, and the deer love those dewberry swamps. I um, absolutely love them. And that's where he focuses a lot of his time and things like that. Well, here where I hunt, um, you know, we don't have any of that stuff. So what I'm looking for here is, you know, clear cuts, things like that. And I'm looking for natural browse, okay? And, and I started with, I will, I will not, like, now I have maps on my phone. But before, you know, up until about three or four years ago, I used to always have a printed, printed aerial photo with me, uh, from either Google Earth or PASDA, you know, PASDA. There's a website called PASDA, P-A-S-D-A dot P-S-U dot E-D-U that has great aerial photos on. And, uh, I always, I was always print a, a print a map, aerial photo map along with a topo map of the same scale right underneath it. I will not go into the woods without that, you know. And I would just, you know, try to get as much information as I can from the aerial photo as far as being, you know, clear cuts and things like that, or maybe even areas of, uh, you know, natural disturbances, uh, you know, wind events or even gypsy moth defoliation where it killed, you know, where you see gaps in a canopy. Because typically when you get gaps in a canopy, you're going to, the sunlight's going to get into the forest floor. You're going to get some, hopefully get some regeneration on the ground. Young trees, browse, deer browsers, right? So I'm looking for browse, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it takes a good, I don't know, I bet four or five years to learn an area, you know? And one thing I do want to say here, um, I have had probably my best success hunting within 200 yards of state forest and state game lands roads. Um, that may sound surprising to some, you know, when I started 2005, um, everything that I read was get deep, right? Get deep. Well, sure. There might be some areas that are very good, you know, far back in, but I can assure you right now, some of the best areas are right beside roads and things like that because, and it's because the habitat is there. When I say habitat, deer food, things like that, there's usually maybe some type of timber management that was done beside the road or something like that. Um, so don't, you don't necessarily, deeper isn't always better. I can guarantee you that deeper is not always better. Um, I made a mistake, you know, of, of, of falling for that. You know, the first couple of years I started hunting big woods areas. Mm-hmm. The perfect example with that is, uh, 2008, I, I was lucky enough to kill a, a seven-year-old, uh, nine point. And, uh, I shed hunted that area for three, three years. And I had found some nice sheds there and I was literally within 200 yards of the, of the state forest road. And, uh, it took me a good two years to, to finally put a tree stand in there because I thought, you know, mature buck will never come through there. It's too close to it. I, I could literally watch cars go by, you know, and I ended up killing over the next, I think it was four years. Um, ended up killing or no, it was the next six years. It was ended up killing three mature bucks out of the same, basically the same area right there in the same stand. I'm literally watching state, you know, the cars go by. And, uh, and it's an area that a lot of guys overlook what, what, what it is, you know, mm. um, when I shed hunt, you know, I don't know what it is about this, but the, the, the mature box of mature white dogs, and I'm a forester too. I didn't, I didn't mention that. So I'm, I mean, I'm in the woods a lot and I see this at work a lot. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the deer, especially mature bucks, and I don't know what the reason is for this, but they will come out. And they will lay right beside the roads and I'll, and watch the roads. And the reason I know this is because I find their shed there. That's actually what I do. I do a lot of shed hunting right beside, right off of, off of, you know, public roads, state forest or state game lands road. Yeah. It's unbelievable how much you will see that. Unbelievable. It's crazy how much you'll see that. And, uh, roads don't mean anything to me. You know, they, they mean nothing to me as far as, uh, um, you know, where I'm going to hunt and things like that, you know, so. They, they did when, like I said, the first couple of years I did, I would kill myself hiking in a mile and a half sometimes. And, um, you know, I still, 
you know, where I killed that, that one two, two years ago, that was in a little bit, you know, but, um, I, I've had, you know, good success, just as much success right beside the road. So don't, don't overlook those, you know, spots beside the road, but. Well, I'm um, curious, what do you think, you know, having had six seasons and three mature buck out of that area, what do you think looking back on that made that such an overlooked area? There was a swamp there, which deer like, you know, they like these swamps, um, uh, in, you know, up in the north, in the north country. And there was a clear cut over there too, um, that the deer were, uh, you know, basically spent a lot of time in and uh that area has since changed that's one thing i want to say too is uh you know it's funny over the last 20 years i have some areas that were for 10 years that were just very good areas as far as like not only shed hunting but good hunting areas too now they're they're just like cold you know things change so you got to be you know you got to be observant of that and and recognize that too you know so you got to find new areas every you know every couple years or whatever you can't rely on the same area every year which pretty much everybody knows that but um, uh, you'd be surprised. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, um, so yeah, that's, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's one of the reasons why that area was good. Like I said, the, the timber, the management was there. When I say management, there was basically trees cut, you know, things like that, uh, clear cuts and sh- uh, what we call shuttlewood harvest. Right. Things of that nature. But yeah, so, I mean, the reason, the number one reason Pennsylvania has bigger deer is, you know, there's obviously antler restrictions, but the other thing is, uh, you know, there's more timber being harvested than what was being done 20, 30 years ago, you know, and deer browsers and, uh, you know, deer being browsers, they have more food to eat, you know, so that's, that's one of the reasons why, but <laughs> excuse me, you know, last week we were talking about, um, last, the, the season of last year, we had, when I say two year, we, we had a bad winter, not, not this past year, but the year before in 20, the winter 20. of 2020 to 2021 was extremely brutal. Okay. And, uh, we lost a lot of deer up here in the, in the, in the mountains. And, uh, I, I found 42 winter kills last year in the spring season. And it was a short shed season. It was a short shed season last year. When I say last year, I'm talking 2021, not this year. And, uh, if you remember back to last year, um, 2021, uh, we had snow up here until about the March 20 something. You know, we, there's a lot of places I couldn't even get to in the mountains because the roads were ice. They were so bad. And then we got a, April was pretty much above normal temperatures. And then by the end of April, the fern was pushing up and my season was done by the first of May last year. So I basically had a five week season, you know, most shed hunters had a short season last year. And, uh, but yeah, the winter was brutal. Uh, found, you know, several mature bucks that had already shed. And, and we had basically what we had was, uh, December 16th or 17th, something like that. I forget what it was of 2020. We got 35 inches of snow and then we got two inches of rain Christmas Eve that year and it froze like a block of ice. And it was, it was the second hardest winter of my lifetime. The first hardest winter of my life that I've ever can remember was the winter of 1994. That was extremely brutal. And, uh, we had snow. I think I told you just last week we had snow in Potter County until June 3rd that year. Um, I'm not talking fresh now. I'm talking snow that was there, uh, from, from the previous right. winter there. And, uh, but anyways, yeah, we, 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 last year was a rough season, you know, for mature bucks. A lot of them were, and then again, this is my opinion. I spent a lot of time with trail cameras and shed hunting this past year. I just, my shed count was down this year, especially with the size of some of the deer, some of the sheds that I found, you know, and even last year going back and running trail cameras, I just was not getting the bucks. And if you look at the, the buck poles, you know, local buck poles for, for Potter County, Tioga County, there was, in my, you know, you, you'll see it, there wasn't, 
the night that there were still nice bucks around, but not the numbers that we had previous years. And a lot of it, in my opinion, was, was attributed to that winter that we had. So what I'm getting at is the mountain deer are faced with a lot of obstacles in their lifetime, you know, and, uh, when the winter time is one of them for sure, that, that brings down a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of old bucks, you know, you get a, you get a bad winter. That's, that's hard on them. That's a, it's, so, uh, that would make sense to me too, because I mean, you, you think mm-hmm. about how hard a, a mature buck can run himself ragged, Absolutely. Uh, chasing yep. doe. And if you, you know, couple in some of the, the stresses <laughs> you can face, whether it's maybe a poor mass crop that year, um, maybe early snow cover that's covering brows, uh, gypsy moth, something, you know, all the factors that could add another notch in the level of stress for a mature deer couple that with losing 30 to 40 percent of their body weight i think 30 percent is not uncommon in a mature buck and then out of harsh winter that absolutely makes sense and you know we hear about that in other parts of the country you don't typically hear about that in pennsylvania but in the places you're talking about it's it's kind of the the one area of Pennsylvania that's kind of like the untamed wilderness, so to speak, when you compare it to the rest of our state. It's well, that's hard to measure unless you're out there spending a lot of time at it, right? Exactly, and you're somebody who so, does. Right, exactly. So you know that's um, and, and you know I, I work with you know eight or nine other foresters, and every one of them going to tell you that's what I just told you. You know, every single one of them. Are. And uh, so yeah, a lot not a lot of people may know that um, it was it was definitely brutal up here for sure. It may take a year or two to get back. You know, I definitely, like in the oak country, our best years as far as antler development is when you have acorn crops and not winter, bar none. I mean, for sure. You, I mean, we, when, when I killed that deer a year and a half ago, I think I told you this, this last week, I was telling somebody this, maybe I think it was you, but, uh, um, the last three years of his life, he had bumper acorn crops and, uh, he had a lot of browse available to him as well, but, um, those acorn crops definitely attributed to his, you know, his, he obviously had good genetics too, superb genetics, but, um, those acorn crops definitely, um, attributed to his antler development for sure, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things that, a lot of little things that have to come together, you know, to produce, um, I guess big antler deer. And, you know, one thing I've never, I can't say that I, that I hunt. Big, big antler deer. I, I hunt mature deer. Exactly. Because, and that's a trophy you know, right there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have sheds off, uh, I can't even tell you how many bucks that they're, you know, over, I don't know, some over three, four years. And, you know, they lived all up to eight, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. I've, I've one lived to 12 years old. And the biggest set of antlers he grew, uh, was 85 inches. And, uh, if, if I had, if you were here, I could show you this. It's the same exact deer from, you know, I, I think I knew, I had, I think I had, four or five years of sheds from him over like an eight year period. He lived up to 12 years old, but I guess to be 12 years old, but, um, but yeah, he grew, he, he grows 85 inches and you know, a lot of people and a lot of people's minds that may not be a trophy, but well, I'll tell you what, that is a, that's, that's a heck of a trophy, you know, regardless of what he has on his head, you know, so. You know, um, antlers are something for me. This is the way I view antlers, and I've talked about this when it comes to my personal goals. You know, you shared some years, and my personal goals are to harvest a deer that I believe is four and a half years or older, and I'd like to do it with my bow. And if it has a very large set of antlers, to me that's a bonus, and that's that's a that's a bonus and it's one of the rewards when you see deer get to their age where they can express their full maximum potential however not all deer created equal and i I would personally rather 
harvest a deer that of of a caliber like you just described that's somewhere in that you know five and a half plus year old range whatever that may be and might only gross 100 to 120 inches or, or 85 inches like this deer you just described i mean that's a trophy because you know I don't think the wits of that deer that has 85 inches on his head is any less than the no. deer of the same age that has 150 inches of bone on his head. Now, of course, if both are standing in front of you, I don't know a single <laughs> hunter that would right, shoot right. a 150 inch deer. But what I'm saying is when you go through a season like you're describing of of seeing what would you say 10 deer in a season or something like that mm-hmm. you harvest you something yeah. like that um, yeah yep. and to be able to hunt a deer with the same level of um what's the word i'm looking at? like character or the same level of ability at that age class matching wits uh, that's a trophy and i don't care it's just Absolutely. That, that that's just how i view it i mean they're they're Trophies oh, I agree. I a beholder, and I think age is a is a really really cool thing for whitetails. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, just because a you know a buck has 180 inches on his head doesn't make him any smarter than I did a a buck of the same age that has 90 inches on his head. You know, a lot of people may may think that or you know view it that way, but no, it, it isn't that way. You know, so. But yeah, I agree 100 percent. Sure, yep. Corey, I mean, this has been fantastic. I could probably pick your brain for another hour, and, and we didn't even get to talk about some of the the things in uh, in your recurve hunting journey, which I really wanted to get into. I just I, I do what I always do, and I get infatuated when people start to you know just unload what they think about the whitetails and and the, the big woods, and I, I appreciate you um, talking about all those things and your experiences and and all your findings throughout the year and you know maybe it, it comes that maybe we we do this again sometime and talk a little bit more in depth sure. about your recurve um hunting and the journey and, and helping other people's take up a new challenge uh with a stick bow like sure you have. sure yeah it's uh it, it is it has enriched my life after it's, it's changed my life and uh it's just so much fun so much fun it's added such a new it, it's it's year-round enjoyment of shooting the boat right you know and uh but yeah, I would, we could definitely do that sometime, Mitchell. That would be great. Um, we could, you know, there's a lot there. I, you know, I struggled with, uh, target panic, the dreaded target panic, right? Um, and I, and I still, you know, still struggle with that. Everybody does, you know, and I had it when I, when I, when I shot a compound, but I didn't, I didn't know what it was and it didn't, it didn't really matter much back then because I could still shoot accurately with it. Well, when I got it with a, with a recurve, um, I mean, I would miss by two feet, right? Wow. <laughs> so. And, uh, it's, it's that much more, you know, uh, I guess noticeable with a recurve, but I found ways around it. And, uh, you know, Joel Turner has helped me a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of people. I know you said you've heard of Joel Turner and Mm -hmm. that, that is his, 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 uh, way of shooting has helped me. And I shoot with a trigger now, actually. And what what I mean by that is I, um, and two, let me back up a little bit. I have, a, I mean, we could, we could talk a little bit about this. It's kind of interesting stuff. And in my mind, it's my, in my mind, it's interesting anyway that, you know, and uh, I don't know if there's many, you know, hopefully, some, you know, some traditional archers are listening to this that, uh, maybe they'll gain something from it. But in 2016, I ordered a new bow. 2015, actually ordered, I ordered my first custom longbow, actually. And I got it like eight months later. And, uh, I got it in April of that year and I shot the heck out of it just i mean i love the bow shot every day shot i mean there were some days i would shoot hundreds of arrows 
and uh, I shot without a trigger. And what I mean by a trigger is um, a clicker of things like, you know, if anybody's ever watched an Olympic shooter shoot, they're, uh, you know, they're 70-inch uh, full metal uh, decked out recurve, you know. Um, they're all shooting clickers. The Olympic recurve, Olympic archers are shooting clickers. And clicker is basically just a piece of string, uh, spring-mounted steel that's hooked to their arrow, the end of their arrow. When they expand, uh, that, that, that quick, that, uh, piece of steel, uh, hangs over their arrow. When they, when they pull that arrow behind that spring mounted steel, that clicks. And that click is their cue to shoot. Well, I can do that. I mean, I shoot with a clicker on my, my traditional bow as well. It's a limb mounted clicker. It's a piece of string that connects from my, from my bow string to the, to the limb of my bow. And there's a piece of, uh, a, a spring mounted, uh, steel there that when I pull on that, when you pull on that, it clicks. And that's my cue. That's my trigger to shoot. Well, I shot without a trigger for a long time. In, in July of 2016, I filmed myself shooting that, that new custom bow I had. And when I come in, I, I filmed a couple, I don't know, a couple minutes of me shooting. And I come in my house and I put, put, it, put the SD card in my computer. And I watched myself shoot and I about fell out of my seat at what I saw. I could not believe it. I was dropping the target. I was basically a drive-by shooter. And I would come down, my arrow would sit right on the top. I'm a gap shooter, so I, you know, I'm seeing, I look at the arrow when I shoot. And, uh, I would put the arrow on the top of the back of the deer, and I would, in order to get it there, I would have to drop down to, to you know, to, to where I wanted the arrow to be. Like, if I, want, if I wanted to be behind the shoulder, you know, I'd have to drop down. And I was, you know, it's called drive-by shooting. And, uh, I saw that on the, on the, on the computer, and I couldn't believe I was doing it. I didn't even know I was even doing it. I called my dad that night and I says, you know, I can't believe it. And I shot, I said, I'm, I know I'm, I'm drive, I'm a drive by shooter. I didn't know I was even doing it. And my dad says, you've been doing it in the last six months. He said, I just didn't want to tell you because it, you'd get worse, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that was July. That was July. And, uh, you know, this is just some of the struggles and the, and the fun of, of shooting a recurve, you know, getting, getting past all this stuff. So that, that, that July, you know, it was July in archery season. You know, I love, I obviously love deer hunting. I, I live for that, you know, and, and I can remember the fall of 2016, and I, and I shot like that for the next couple of months. And the fall of 2016 came, you know, and I can remember going, walking in the deer woods in prime time during the rut and thinking to myself, please, I don't want to see a deer today because I, I can't hit them. There's no way I can hit them. You know, I target panic so bad. Wow. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do. And you talk about a sick feeling. I don't make you, I don't, I don't, I mean, I ruined the season. I didn't know what to do. And, uh, that season ended. I didn't kill a deer that year. I don't think they had an opportunity at a mature buck that year. And, uh, I did the best thing that I've ever done. I, 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 uh, I bought a target recurve and a 70 inch bow and I put a clicker on it. And for the next three months, I transformed my shot and I uh, shot some indoor competition. And, um, I, that clicker really helped me out a lot. And the clicker, a lot of people talk negative about clickers. I can tell you right now, you put, putting a clicker on a bow is an extremely difficult, that shot is an extremely physical, it's a physical shot. It's, it's, it ain't easy. It just, you don't put a clicker on your bow and become a world champion overnight. I can guarantee that. It's a very, very, very demanding style of shooting. But anyways, that was the best thing I ever did because it taught me a lot of things. It taught me how to, number one, the main thing it taught me is how to pull through a shot. You know, I, I, I in order to, have, for me and for most guys, um, you have to pull through that shot. In other, hand, in other words, you have to get off the string. It's, you know, you're, you're obviously shooting with your fingers. And getting off a string can be difficult sometimes. You know, it's getting a clean release. And that clicker taught me how to do that. 
And that was tens of thousands of shots. And that following year, I ended up going, started shooting competition and I ended up winning a world championship that year, an IBO championship. And so what I'm getting, the only reason I say that is just to show that the year before I had extreme target panic and I was able to work around it. And, you know, since then I, I do other things now, you know, one, the way I shoot now is so competitioners, I, I do, I'm a competitive shooter. Um, there's certain classes that, you know, that we shoot that we're not allowed to shoot a clicker, right? Right. And there's other ways around that. And Joel Turner has made some of this stuff kind of, kind of popular, you know, like uh, he talks about grip sears and tab sears and internal triggers and things like that. And, uh, I've shot a tab, it's called a tab sear. So, you know, traditional archers, we shoot a tab. You can either shoot a glove or a tab. And I, I prefer a tab, right? And a tab sear is basically, it's a shot where you actually, I come back to full draw, I get my sight picture, get my aim, and I put my fingernail right on the back of the tab. And I start pressing against the back of that tab. When that pops, that's when my, that's my cue to shoot. That's the trigger to shoot. And basically what that does, that, that style of shooting, it gets rid of your pre-ignition, pre-ignition movements into your shot, you know. And, uh, this style of shooting though takes an extremely massive amount of determination because when you get back to full draw and you get your sight picture and you start, you know, pressing on that sear on your tab, on your fingernail, whatever it is, your mind wants to let that, it, that sight picture looks beautiful, looks gorgeous, right? And you're like, man, you just want to let go of that string, you know, but you cannot do that. You have to continue to work through that sear. Another thing I'm doing now is, uh, the inter- it's called an internal trigger. I, I actually breathe air in. And I've been doing, this is the first year that I've, that I've kind of been doing it, taking the competition and, and I'm having really good results with it. Where I just, I come back to anchor and I just start breathing air in. If you ever see, if you ever see like a fox, going across the field and you squeal like a rabbit to a fox that's that's all i'm doing i'm just kind of sucking air in or breathing air in or whatever and when that when that air breaks as i breathe in that's what triggers my shot and the beautiful thing about it is there's no input into the shot so you know when i run the tabs here you know i got tension in my hand right. you know obviously when you when, when you pop that you know when you're when you're curling your, your finger your thumb finger now you're, you're you're using muscles in your fingers right so it's, it makes it a little difficult getting off the string so yeah, when you say input but, in uh, the shot you're talking about some kind of cognitive thing that's going on with your body that's ultimately right. creating some kind of pressure or tension that could result in a manipulated shot because you you might be uh, a, yep. a type of torque or something with with this style if i'm understanding you right it's there there's no your, your shot execution in your your bow arm your back tension your release hand all of that stays constant without any added tension is that correct that's exactly right there's no it's 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 an art it's so when you're when you're when you're taking your fingernail and pop off your tab that's not an, that's that's not an archery shot right you know that's nothing that's archery related that's not a, an archery movement and uh because you're creating tension into the shot well when i'm breathing air in there's no there's no input there's no tension within the shot you know it's just just breathing air in and it works really well so obviously it's taken tens of thousands of arrows for me to for me to do it and and and, and to kind of trust it and accept it and get used to it you know like anything else but um it's one thing that's been working really good for me now and uh, I, I do think that it's it'll you know joel turner actually i think it's about two years ago started talking about it and there's i know there's a couple other guys that, that do it too but i think it's gonna in the next couple of years I, I do believe that'll get more popular with guys traditional archers, you know, will start using it more, you know, it definitely works. I know there's a couple, you know, there's more guys are using it, but, uh, yeah, but the only reason I mentioned that is just to kind of, you know, kind of just get a taste for what, 
you know, the, many of the people that don't have never, you know, been exposed to traditional archery. It's not just pull the string back and let it rip, you know. <laughs> that's not what it is. It's a, it's a lot more advanced than that. And uh, that's that's what makes it a dog on fun, is that the level you can take it to. And and it's so stinking challenging. It is so challenging to, to, to be accurate with them. And the other thing is, too, it's just so much fun to watch you. You know, you get to see the arrow fly. Mm-hmm. That's what's so cool about it. You know, that's what's so much fun. You get to see that arrow go. And, uh, but anyways, that's, yeah. I I have two things to add to this and and they speak at two different levels. And the the first one is kind of like, you know, speaking to the level of the, the people who are avid stick bow shooters, recurve longbow shooters. And you, you made the comment about some people like to roll their nose up when it comes to adding a clicker or certain styles of shooting. And, And while I'm not a traditional shooter, by any means what i what i will say is if it's legal and it helps you be more effective and more accurate why wouldn't you do it and you know i relate that to my compound shooting um i i I experienced target panic just the same and uh, it took me a really really long time to break that mental blockade and what I've gravitated towards doing is I shoot a, a sear release, a, a hinge-style release, sure. and I shoot that yep. 365 days a year. And a lot of people go, oh, you shoot a back tension release. Well, I shoot mm-hmm. a back tension shot no matter what release is attached to the string. Back tension right, is right. a style of shooting. But what I find is that when I shoot that hinge release that is the release that when i shoot under pressure which you know if you're shooting at a target against your buddy or you know like you shooting ibos or or if i'm shooting at, at a at a at a game animal that is the one that i won't break my form and i can execute my shot the best and, and won't fall for and i still find myself under pressure with other style of releases i'll, I'll kind of break habit break form and might make a, right. a, a poor shot so you know that's kind of my thought when you talk about your uh, your clicker but my second yeah. thing i wanted to ask you and th- this is kind of speaking to that novice base is you talk about shooting and and knowing when to shoot. And that is so foreign to me because shooting a back tension style in compound, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can to not know when the shot goes off. I have an right. idea of a maybe a, a certain time gap window that I know it's going to go off then. But when it goes off, it surprises me. And like, you, you can't do that with a stick bow but i'm in my mind somebody who's overcome target panic how do you go through and beat target panic but you still have to know when your shot goes off no i don't know when it's going to go off so that's that's the system that i use right so when so when that's so with the tabs so with a clicker same thing with a clicker too when that basically what you're doing is you're increasing tension expansion on the bow right you're pulling through you're pulling, pulling, pulling. All of a sudden, that, that, that clicker clicks. That's your cue to shoot. You have no idea when that is going to go. Okay. Okay. Same thing with a, with a tab sear or a grip sear. Grip sear is basically when you, it's, 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 it's when you wrap your bow hand fingernail basically around the front of the riser and you roll it basically. You, you pop your fingernail off the riser. That's a grip sear. I cannot shoot a grip sear because I've tried and I don't even know a lot and I cannot shoot a grip sear. I torque the bow. It does not work for me. I, I move on. I, I try to find something else, right? 
That's where the tab sear comes in. So the tab sear, what you're doing with the tab sear is you're wrapping, you're basically uh, popping your fingernail off. So, so let me slow down here. So what you're doing is you're coming back to full draw, getting settled in, getting your sight picture, and then all of a sudden your conscious mind is only focused on one thing. You're watching your sight picture, right? You're just watching. You're letting you're letting your arrow float. And I'm, I'm wrapping my pin or my uh, my uh, fingernail around the back of my tab, right? Mm. And I'm popping, and I'm just increasing pressure. I'm I'm, I'm completely 100% conscious mind. And your conscious mind can only do one thing at a time, and it's 100% when I'm when I'm doing it right. Anyways, your conscious mind is 100% on the increase in pressure to get that nail to pop. And when that pops, that's when you fire. You have no clue when that is going to pop. You can anticipate anything if you want to, if you let your mind go forward. But if you let your mind go forward, you're, you're out of your shot sequence. Your, your conscious mind is not doing what it should be. It should be 100% on the, the, the pressure, the increase, the movement, basically, that gets you to, to pop through that seal. And that only. So you have no clue when that's going to go. Right, because when you, you know, your fingers are connected to the bow, so you don't know, you know, how do you get a surprise release? Well, that's how you do it. You know, your sub, your, your mind can't catch it, you know, it's not fast enough to catch it. So there's no input into the shot. And the same thing with the internal trigger, I'm breathing air in. Um, I have to breathe air in. I've tried an external, I basically probably call it an external trigger where I breathe air out. But I cannot do that. I can't anticipate that because I can feel the buildup of the air when it come, when it's going to come out, you know. But when I breathe air in, I cannot feel that. There is no, for me, in the way that I shoot, you know, there's no, I, I can't anticipate that. So. I'm just breathing air, you know, I'm just kind of starting to breathe air in, and when that air, you know, breaks through your mouth, that's when you shoot. So, you, yeah, it's a surprise release every time. But, you know, getting back to your back hinge release or, your, you know, your uh, uh, your hinge release or whatever, that's not easy to do for you, though, is it? I mean, it takes a massive amount. It takes a lot of determination to stay in that movement, right? Um, it's not, it's, it's not something that just happens. You can't, you can't just, you know, it's a lot easier to punch that trigger, right? Oh, absolutely. I, I guess I have to think absolutely. about the way you're saying, cause I've, I've now done it so long that it is like autopilot, but yeah, you're right. Like you, you're in order to get that release to break and fire, I need to maintain my form, maintain position. And then in order for it to be an accurate shot, I have to concentrate on where I'm aiming and if I concentrate on aiming alone and I do everything else in form correctly, the shot should break in an appropriate time and it, the arrow right. should go exactly where I'm aiming. I took, uh, about two months ago, I went down to Lancaster Archery and took uh, Joel Turner's course. He came down there for a couple of days. And uh, it was the only type of archery instruction I took. It was, it was great instruction. And majority of guys there were, you know, were compound shooters. There were a couple of stick bow shooters there, but, it's all the same, right? It's all pretty much the same. He teaches the same concepts um, to both compound shooters and stick bow shooters. And with the compound shooters, he his son, I don't know if you know it or not, but his son just recently won the Vegas shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, he won $85,000, 14 years old, right? It's incredible, <laughs> absolutely incredible. And so obviously what Joel's teaching is what works, right? And uh, um, But what he taught or you know, what he was teaching the compound shooters, right, was and one of the reasons I wanted to go to this is because I aim too hard, right? If you if you ever listen to anything he talks about, he says, let go of the aim. Well, I can tell you, man, I have a hard time doing that. It's because I've been taught, and we've all been taught since we were little kids, to aim hard, right? To aim, aim, aim. It's all we heard about our entire lives. Well, if you take his course or listen to him, he, he, he doesn't aim hard. He just says, let go of the aim, 
let let the pin dance, let the arrow dance, whatever, whatever your sight picture is going to be. Just get your sight picture, and your conscious mind should be 100% on the movement to your trigger, to your activation, to your shot activation trigger. And that's why he, you know, he was teaching the compound guys down there, um, uh, you know, just how to how to work that back tension release. You know, just 100% of it has to be on the the monitoring of the movement of that of that trigger of that uh, back tension release. You know, or or triggered release too. You know. But well, and I think that another thing that's interesting when you say about that, and I'm sorry to cut you off there, I'm just thinking out loud with com- with compounds. He actually talks like there's a big push in target archery for you know people are always tinkering with their stabilizers and adding weight here and adding sure. weight there, and you know with his line of thinking, I think one of the things he's talked about is embracing the float, and I believe his son that won won that with like one of the lightest setups ever. Yeah, he did. He did. Yep. Yep. Not much weight on it, but yeah. Yep. Yep. Just to let that float go, let it happen. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, so make sure, it's all making sure I understand stuff, yeah. you with the, with, the, mm-hmm. with what you're talking about with that. So you got a clicker on there and you're kind of doing the similar stuff that I'm talking about. You're, um, trying to keep everything constant on your front half and your bow arm you're executing your shot you know your 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 draw cycle keeping form and you're doing all those things and the uh the surprise is you don't know when the clicker goes off but when you get to that distance that's your cue to shoot and you shoot um that's right and and that's how you keep it a surprise so it's a surprise because you're trying to focus on aiming and um be as non-cognitive as possible the one difference about compound and recurve and I, I guess that's really what i meant with my question earlier is my my, my release and my mechanical does it automatically like i'm not right, cognitively right. doing it you still have to and, and correct me if i'm not understanding you, you still have to cognitively shoot the bow you do yep your your fingers your, basically what happens is how it works is your, 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 your fingers go dead basically and the string pulls through your fingers and your mind can't catch it fast enough. When that, when that, when that sear pops, your mind cannot catch it. So there's no pre-ignition move. Yeah. There's no pre-ignition movements into the shot because your mind is not fast enough to catch that. And, uh, but that's, like I said earlier, that style of shooting or this style of shooting, it takes a, you know, it just doesn't happen on itself. It right. takes an extreme amount of determination by the shooter you know you have to be determined and you know i i feel that uh you know i want to be as accurate as i possibly can not only in competition but when i'm when i go to the deer woods you know and that's why i'll always hunt with a clicker you know that's um that's uh because the clicker keeps you you know you have the same draw length every time you know and when you're up in a tree stand that can change when you're shooting down you know You'd be surprised at how much shorter your draw is when you're aiming down at an animal, you know. And uh, but I'll always shoot with a with a trigger. I mean, I can shoot without a trigger, but within I don't know a month time, I'll get quick on you know I'll start doing what I did a couple years ago, dropping the target and things like that. And you know I shoot with guys all, all year long and stuff. And uh, a lot of them have target panic and they don't you know they don't want to accept it. And I the reason I been able to deal with it is because I've accepted it. You know, I know that I have it. Everybody has it, you know, to some, to some degree, some guys get it worse than others and, and women too, you know, um, but it's just how, how you deal with it. And, uh, the only way, the only thing that's worked for me is what, you know, the methods that I've, that I've talked about here, you know, and, you know, it, 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 
it'll rear its head up in, you know, stressful situations for sure. I've, you know, I've seen it on competition lines where guys, you know, they really, really get in you know, the target panic sets in, but it's, uh, what I, you know, what I describe to you is what works for me, you know, shooting with the trigger and the flip side of it, the, the, the neg- I shouldn't say negative side, but the downside of it, however you want to word that is it takes an extreme amount of determination to do it. And, and, and that's, you know, only the shooter can do that, you know, only yourself can do that. So, but that's what makes this so much fun, you know. So it does. It's a challenge that you keep trying to face head on yep. and, and conquer it as best you can. Like I, I'm just thinking about that target panic thing and trying to relate it between compound and recurve. And and every time I think about it, I just see how much more amplified overcoming it is with that style of bow. Because while I, I face some adversity in trying to overcome target panic with my compound, I'm just thinking about the things that broke in my shot when I knew that a shot went off, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was gripping my bow with my from on my bow hand and torquing or, you know, maybe not you know, being weak on my shoulders and my bow kind of, you know, jumps forward on you. Like all the things that caused bad shooting when you have really bad target panic and i'm just thinking about trying to overcome that with a stick bow and it just like everything we talked about with with shooting a stick bow it's just amplified it's just so at at a much finer level to overcome and that's just that's mind-boggling to me because i think about how worked up i get in the deer woods and then trying to add one more like uh I'm going to call it a monkey wrench just because I don't have a better word, but like one more thing to go (laughs) go against you in your, Mm -hmm. in in your, Mm -hmm. in your arsenal going after a whitetail. Right. Yeah, it is. That's what, to me, that's like I said earlier, that's what makes it fun now. So, you know, and and it's not for everybody. Trish archery is growing by leaps. Right now it's a good time. It's, you know, it's growing by leaps and bounds right now. It's just, it's taken off. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I kind of like what it was for me, you know, just, um, discovered it based because they got a little, maybe a little bored or something and kind of started dabbling in it and just kind of started, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. And, uh, but uh, it is growing right now and there's a lot of good information out there. And before we go, I just, there's two bits of information I, you know, that if, if anybody's interested in trying it, you know, I've had good teachers. Um, I was very, very fortunate when I started this, uh, with, within a half hour of where I live, there's two guys that live within a half hour where I live that is, taught me a tremendous amount of information and uh um anyways um i shot for a year and i struggled for a year and uh until i picked up the phone and called these guys it's kind of a long story but uh the two bits of information they gave me was uh, number one don't shoot too heavy of a bow and you'll, you'll see that you'll hear guys talk about other guys talk about that you know don't overbow yourself especially you know it's just you know i shot a 60 pounds of the compound well I shoot 43, I hunt with 43 pounds right now. So okay. that's, uh, you know, I, I don't shoot heavyweight and that'll shoot right through any deer, any white tail. You know, it'll, it's plenty powerful enough with, with a, with a cut on contact broadhead and the right arrow set up in a heavy enough arrow. But, um, the other thing that they told me, and this is huge, and it's not talked about as much as what the light, the lighter bow is, the lighter draw weight bow is. And that is the length of the bow. The length of the bow is huge, and it matters tremendously in, 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 in your accuracy, at least in my mind it does. And what I mean by that is, you know, I won't hunt with anything less than a 60, I, have a, I won't hunt with anything less than a 66-inch bow. I draw 29 inches, and, uh, you know, for a guy drawing 27 inches, that might be a 64-inch bow, something like that, you know, because there is a certain point where you reach, you know, too long of a bow for your draw, like you start to lose 
efficiency out of that bow, you know, the, the, right. the limb, the working part of the bow limb. But what that, you know, a longer bow is going to be easier to pull and it's, you're going to have less finger pinch because you got, you know, you got a longer bow, your string angle is less, right? So you're going to get off the string a little bit easier. But, um, I had zero trouble hunting with a 66 inch bow in a tree stand. But I, the first year I hunted with a 62 inch bow and, uh, I was shooting 47 pounds in a 62 inch bow and, now, like I said, I shoot a 60, anywhere from a 66 to even a 68 inch bow. And 43 pounds is, mo- is the heaviest I'll go. Now, if I, you know, if I go elk hunting, I might bump it up to like 46 or something like that. But the length of the bow matters, you know, and, and it's something you don't hear a lot of guys talk about, at least in traditional archery. And I go to a lot of the shoots and stuff like that. And a lot of, a lot of guys are, are shooting like 62, 60, 60 inch bows and, you know, that's a short bow. The shorter the bow, the harder it's going to be to shoot. And, you know, those limbs are going to pull a little harder. It's like a lever. The longer a lever you have, the easier it is to pull that lever, right? Same thing with a bow, with a, with a, with a recurve, a long bow. And, uh, just, just little things to keep in mind and things that were taught to me by, uh, a couple of good guys that I, that I shoot with up here, but, uh, that, that have helped me tremendously. Well, so. And I'm glad you shared that too, because I think about my, um, long bow shooting experience. I, I got into a kick where I, or phase, I guess, where I wanted to, I had it in my mind. I wanted to try it. And mm-hmm. before, before any listener, you know, wants to get all my case about trying something, it was just truly, I was interested and sure. I, I didn't take the time to fully commit to it. But when you, when I talked to you the last time you brought it up here in, in our conversation this evening, um, the overbowing yourself, I definitely felt overbowed trying to sure. shoot yep. that bow. It was a, I believe it was somewhere, it was a 66 to 68 inch long bow, but it was a 56 pound bow. Yep. Okay. And yep. Yep. A little heavy. I, I shot for a while and it was, it was fun, but I think I lost, uh, confidence or the, I lost the desire to really want to pursue any further of it because I felt overbowed shooting and I got, I got tired and I felt like I would break form and it, it, it lost its fun for me, so to speak. Not only that, I, I, I had plenty of other things in my daily life that I just didn't make it a priority, but I think mm, at sure. some point in my life, I might there's a very good chance that I will want to go back and revert and, and I, I want to try to go into a uh, journey of pr- pursuing a long bow or a recurve bow, sure, just as sure, you've talked right, yep. about. And, and I think that's the big thing that I learned is when that happens, I need to get the right equipment from the get go to have a good experience. Right. And it, like you just said there, it may not be for everybody too, you know, the, the whole traditional thing, but at some point you're probably going to reach that, you know, and that's what it was for me, you know, but yeah. Um, like I said earlier, the the best thing I did was, uh, in 2000, at the end of 2016, I, I bought that target bow. It was an old vintage target bow. It was 70 inches and it was 35 pounds. And that is, if anybody starting out, that's what I would do again. I mean, that is the best thing to do because that's where you learn your form. And a uh, heavy bow is going to be very, very difficult to shoot and uh, to, to shoot accurately anyways, right off the bat, you know. And uh, But the best advice is to buy, you know, start off with a light bow and, and uh, you know, a longer bow too for sure. And, you, and like I said, I just hunt with a longer bow because I don't have any trouble with it in, in a tree or anything like that. You know, I just, I've gotten used to it and uh, it's, it's, it lets me be, a little bit more accurate, you know, a little bit more forgiving on, uh, 
on the shot. So, but yeah. So. I, I never understood that even in the compound world. Like there's a big push in all the bows now. They're shorter and it's a tree sure, stand yep. model and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like I shoot a compound bow that's 36 inches axle to axle. I have absolutely zero problem whether I'm in a ground blind or a box yeah, blind right. or a tree stand or on the ground. Like it's, I have no problem shooting that bow. I'm thinking, sure. and I've always thought the same thing too. Like, well, if it's such a problem, then how do people with, with uh, traditional equipment do it? Right. Yeah. When I started back in, uh, 92 with a compound, I think it was 42 inches or 40 something, sure. 43 inches or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. You should, that's, yeah, it's good to hear you on the longer bow. And that's probably a little bit more forgiving and more accurate for you too. So, you know, they, they say it's not, you know, I've heard so many different people that talk about that is there's no differences. It's not, but you know what, in my mind, I, I like the string angle better. I feel that it's I shoot a seven inch brace height, which for a compound is a longer brace height now. And it's sure, just yep. I, I think it you know even if it's a half a percent <clears throat> is all it gives me, I, I I'll take a half a percent all day long when it comes to the archery game. Sure, all right, um, absolutely. Yep. But you yep. know, um, yep. Corey, do you have anything else that you'd really like to just share or or you know reach out? You know, do you do you do anything beyond? Um, uh, beyond like you've, you've written some articles and stuff. Do you do anything social media? Like, is there anything you like, do you post stuff? Are you not a person that posts <clears> stuff? Like, you know, out, out, of, nah, out of curiosity you, for people who are listening and might want to know more about you. I don't Mitchell. I, I kind of keep to myself and, uh, you know, I, I certainly, certainly glad you asked me to be on, on your, on your show there. I don't do a whole lot of podcasts or stuff like that. I, but I decided to do this one just to kind of, uh, you know, promote traditional archery and, uh, cause it's, it's, like I said earlier, earlier, it's enriched my life. And when I killed that deer, um, a year and a half ago or whatever, <laughs> I said it a million times, I was a very, very fortunate hunter to, to be able to hunt a deer like that. And I was a hundred times more fortunate to be able to kill him. And, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of hunters will never have that opportunity, you know, and, I wasn't even going to share the story or anything. And my buddy from down home in Clearfield County convinced me to do it. And, uh, I'm not much of a public person, but, um, I decided to, to, to write an article on it and, uh, uh, just to kind of show, you know, my love for traditional archery and, and how it's changed my life. But, you know, hopefully somebody listening tonight, you know, or, or today or whatever will, uh, maybe at least try it. And, uh, and like I say, it's not for everybody, but it is, it is a lot of fun. It's, 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 it's extremely addicting, a lot of fun. So, and, and now I'm, yep. I am curious since, since we have kind of flirted around that conversation and I know you've done some other episodes and you wrote articles about that, you know, mega giant, uh, Northern Pennsylvania hardwoods, whitetail that you killed. But what, what, I don't remember what was the final score in that? And did you get that deer aged? I did, yeah. So he grossed uh, one just a little over one ninety and netted one eighty one, uh, just just under one eighty two. Uh, I think he's one eighty one and seven eight. He, he okay. uh, netted, but yeah, he was he was. I did have him aged. He was six and a half, and uh, wow. Um, I, I had you know I had two sheds from him from the previous previous years, uh, both left sides, and uh, at four and a half, what surprised me? Obviously, he had good genetics, but. At four and a half, he would have grossed in the one seventies, you know, based off the shed that I have. That that shed scores seventy six inches. Wow! And uh, it, it was funny because uh, <laughs> after I killed that deer, well, after I had him scored, I should say, I had I had a couple people because um, he was a you know I he's number two in the state um, for for typical, 
uh, Boone and Crockett score. And uh, I had people ask me, you know, oh, are you upset that he's not the state record? <laughs> well, I, I kind of laughed the first time somebody asked me that because I, I didn't, I didn't, I thought they were joking, you know. And I, you know, never ever in my life did I ever figure I'd ever hunt as a state record deer, potential state record deer, ever, ever, not where I hunt. You know, never. I would never, ever, and that never, that thought never crossed my mind. And, uh, you know, I, I, luckily I was able, able to, to do that. And, uh, you know, I would never, I was never upset of, of, that it wasn't a state record. I was, if anything, the opposite. I'm just grateful for the opportunity to, number one, like I said, just to hunt a deer like that. Number two, to kill him. I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world to, to, to be able to do that, you know, to have that opportunity, you know, just extremely fortunate. But, uh, yeah, so. But uh, that's about all I got, Mitchell, to, 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 to share, you know, um, as far as, as my, my advice and things like that. So, But, yeah, I'm glad glad to share some stories, and it's good talking to you. And thanks again for uh, for having me on your, your, your show here. So I appreciate it. And, hey, you have a good one. Hey, you too, Mitchell. 